Should we start like this? You, me, me, you. Yeah, me, you, you, me, you. you me, I don't know. You, you, me, you go you, ahead. Me, you, All right. me. All right, Wait. Charlie. Let's get it. Let's go. This is crazy. This is absolutely insane. Such at a loss for words. I mean, I'll find them. Don't worry. Y'all like playing against adversity? Man, I just like playing, period. I'm just I'm shocked, and I'm so proud of our guys, man. Unbelievable. Putting the crest on every single time means something to me. Hi, I'm Mitch Purse, and you're listening to the U.S. Soccer Podcast. All right, Charlie. How you doing, pal? You know me. I'm, I'm making the most of life. I'm still enjoying this summer. We've got a couple weeks left till uh, school starts back up for, for, for the boys. So, um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm just uh, I'm in a happy place. What about you? You're soaking it all up. I'm good. I'm good. Um, a lot happening, I think, in MLS front, which we'll get to in, in a bit. But I think for me, that just is exciting, right? The fact that we had a successful tournament and now hopefully, you know, these games now in phase one has been um, exciting, I think, for me to know that that's next, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, but let's talk about, let's tease who we've got today because we've got a big time guest. This week, we're really excited to welcome former U.S. Men's National Team goalkeeper, otherwise known as the GOAT, Tim Howard, to discuss his incredible career and his current role as part owner, sporting director, and player for Memphis 901 FC of the USL Championship. Gosh, he does everything, doesn't he? he? Tim I Howard. Mean, that yeah. Tim Howard. <laughs> Before we get to Tim, we need, we need to give you guys some updates. Charlie, what do you have for us first? Yes. World Cup qualifying news. Okay. Next Wednesday on August 19th, we will find out the U.S. Men's National Team qualifying schedule, which will run from June 2021 to March 2022. Oof. I am so pumped. We have some clarity coming. Yes. You, you know what makes me um, – I, I got to talk about this because when we talk about the Men's National Team and the road to a World Cup, we got to talk about August 12th. What's up with August 12th? years ago, Mr. Charlie Davies scored a goal at the Azteca. Get out of town. Oh, wow. Dempsey again keeps it alive. Bradley pushing it forward. Here's Donovan. Donovan, beautiful ball for Davies. He's got the back. Davies in. Davies shot. Davies goal. Goal for the United States at Azteca. Only the fourth man to do it for the red, white, and blue. And they're going crazy in the corners. Can you feel that still to this day? Yeah, what that, that was like? That feeling will never go away. Um, as a boy, as a, little, as a young boy, I remember watching my first U.S. Men's National Team game. And it was U.S. versus Mexico in the old Foxborough Stadium. Uh, the result ended 2-2. But that, that moment, that match meant everything to me. And I said, this is, this is a match I need to play in. Before, you know, the dream is to become a professional soccer player and play in a World Cup and represent the U.S. But this is the match I need. I need to play. This is the dream to take part in this in this like rivalry and to see what it meant to both sides. Um, Fast forward 2009, going into uh, Azteca Stadium, the the most historic stadium arguably in the world. So um, you're seeing the plaques of Pele and Maradona and, and what it's, you know, it's hosted World Cup finals and the allure of playing in this, this, you know, this massive stadium with, with, you know, hundred plus thousand 
fans inside and, you're and like, to no score to score and have it be silent silent enough where you could hear the 2000 american fans in the corner of the stadium wow. uh yeah the, i i ran i black i i had that outer body experience i i, I remember scoring it saw it hit the back of the net i teleported out of my body was floating and just literally looked at the whole stadium i took it all in and i i remember i, I flashed back to myself as a kid being like this was the dream and and look it, it's happened all that hard work paid off it, it's a magical moment and i'm getting goosebumps just thinking about it what it meant I got to me goosebumps. Yeah. <laughs> that is yeah. so cool i'm glad that i'm glad that we got to record on this day right that yeah when we're recording it is currently august 12th but um to share that memory with you that's cool but one thing we don't have to remember because it just happened is dun, 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 dun. Portland win MLS's back tournament. They are the champions, my friend. Well what? deserved. It was deserved. It was a great tournament. And to see those two teams battle it out in the final, Portland and Orlando City, it was back and forth. And at one point, Portland was up, then it was a tie game, and Portland took the lead in the second half. I thought it had that real feel of it meant something to these players because it did. Not only was there money on the line, there was a trophy on the line, but that coveted CONCACAF Champions League spot was on the line and it's going to the Portland Timbers. When you leave your, your loved ones, your family for, for an extended period of time in this, in this current time uh, with, with COVID-19 and, and the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, you, you're going to, to make it worth something. And for these clubs, they showed uh, whether you, you lost in the group stage or whether you, you made it to the final one in Portland, you saw the quality. And I was, I was really pleased that the, the guys get, went out there and, and gave everything. And um, whether I, I was just a, a, a fan of the game or, or I was calling the games or I was working for MLS in, in the pre and post game, uh, I, I was really impressed with, with the, the character shown and the attitude. And uh, I, was, I was very happy with uh, the outcome. Right. We also have to credit everyone involved pulling this off. You mentioned the players and the coaches, huge credit to them, but to the league office, to club staffs that were at home and in the bubble, to the TV partners, ESPN, Fox, Univision, everyone worked so hard together to create a safe environment and really created a successful tournament for Major League Soccer. They did. Um, shout out to everybody who who played a part because it it, it really did feel safe and comfortable. Players felt comfortable, and, and it showed with the quality. So uh, last week, uh, Major League Soccer also announced the plans for the remainder of the regular season, which will call for teams to play a revised 18 game schedule in their home markets. It all begins this week with FC Dallas and Nashville playing each other twice to make up uh, for the games they missed because they had to pull out of the MLS's back tournament. So I'm I'm looking forward tonight to seeing that, um, yeah. and we'll we'll see how how those teams have have been able to train and and regain their fitness that had the the matchup tonight. Right, it's right back to soccer, which is amazing. The tournament ends, and we're right into games already. The full slate of matches then begins August 20th with the playoffs starting November 20th, and MLS Cup set for December 12th. Everybody cross their fingers for someplace that's warm. Great things though on MLS front for sure, but let's let let's head across to Europe and give you guys some updates about what's going on over there. Okay, so first and foremost, 
We need to have a big congratulations to U.S. men's national team defender Tim Ream, who last week helped Fulham defeat Brentford in the English League Championship promotion playoff final. Well, that's a mouthful, right? But they got to return the Cottagers and a great day, the Cottagers, back to the Premier League next season. What an accomplishment and probably one of the coolest games you can ever play in. It, they 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 say it's the the billion dollar game I believe uh, just because of what it means to to both uh, the fan bases and the money that you're going to recoup for uh, mm-hmm. making that jump into the English Premier League and Fulham's got a special meaning to a lot of of U.S. Men's National Team fans thanks to the long line of players that have gone through Craven Cottage including current general manager Brian McBride, who we had on the show, and he talked about yeah. uh, how special Fulham was, Clint Dempsey, Carlos Bocanegra, among many others. But best of luck to Fulham as they tackle the new Premier League campaign, which is right on the horizon. All right, we're also recording this on Wednesday, so the result will be known by the time you guys hear this, but we want to wish good luck to Tyler Adams and RB Leipzig, who will face Atletico Madrid in the corner finals of the UEFA Champions League on Thursday. Big match for them. Huge. And they're a talented squad. There's no home and away leg. So you're playing on a neutral ground. I really do like the chances for RB Leipzig and Tyler Adams. So uh, I'm I'm really excited to see uh, his team play. And the remainder of the 2019-2020 UEFA Champions League, as Charlie mentioned, is being played over a single legs in Lisbon in that neutral site with the final set for August 23rd. Can we talk about some movement on the U.S. women's national team front? Yes, and I think I know where you're going with this. (laughs) The podcast guest that we've had? (laughs) Oh, yes. Sam Mewis made her way over to England to play for Manchester City and take part in the upcoming English FA Women's Super League campaign. What a great opportunity for her. What a good move to challenge herself in playing for a different club, in a different league, in a different country. She's she's only played with this North Carolina Courage organization as a pro. And I say that you know, with quotes, because she did play for Western New York Flash. Then that team moved to North Carolina. So she's been with the same team her entire club career. So to make that jump and to play in the Women's Super League in England, I think is is great because we've seen it over the last few years, Charlie. The game in England for the women has continued to get better and better. And that's not only on the national team level, it's in the Super League as well. Absolutely. And I spoke to her, I said, make the most of this experience. I really do think you're going to enjoy it and travel as much as you can. (laughs) And hopefully they they figure out um, some vaccines so it's a lot safer to travel. But I really do think she's going to really have a fantastic time in Manchester and, and getting to know her teammates. Yeah, and she not only should travel, but she should go watch some men's game, right? Because she's going to be in the same organization as Zach Steffen. Uh, and those yes. two have had some good interaction on Twitter, Zach, welcoming, welcoming her to the club. So you got to love that. Yeah, I, lo- <laughs> I love the, the Twitter exchange between the two. Um, and so moving from one of our current U.S. Men's National Team goalkeepers to the best ever. Ooh. He was a member of three FIFA World Cup teams and is the U.S. Men's National Team all-time leader in caps with 121 and wins with 62. He's carved out an incredible 14-year career in English Premier League and is currently serving in the tri-role of owner, sporting director, and player 
for USL Championship side, Memphis 901 FC. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the Secretary of Defense, <laughs> Tim Howard. Might be the most interesting man in soccer right now. Um, I had the privilege of playing with you. Uh, Tim, Tim Howard, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. Thank you guys for having me. I, I miss you both. It's been a while, so happy to be on doing this. This is, uh, this is the easy stuff. Right. What an intro too. the most interesting man in soccer right I'll, now. I'll That's... take it. I'll take it. It's good. <laughs> Jeez, Charlie, you're really you're buttering him up right now, huh? We, we go way back. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, we've seen players be managers before, but you've taken it to a new level, Tim. And uh, you're now a minority owner, mm-hmm. sporting director mm-hmm. and goalkeeper for memphis yeah. 901 and usl yeah. walk us through how this really came to be um look I, I i wanted to be part of an ownership group i was given that opportunity um you know with trinity sports holding and, and, and peter freund um here in memphis probably three years ago now and so um I jumped at the opportunity. Everything else came after that. You know, the sporting director role. Uh, once I retired from from Colorado, I was now living full time in Memphis, and so uh, I could be more hands on. And and look, everything I do, even with the goalkeeping, everything I do is 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 driven to to have success and to have an organization that that we can be proud of. And um, you know, I, I talked to Land. I talked to Landon. And he said it publicly. You know, in in San Diego, he's like. There's going to come a time when I'm not going to be the coach of this team. I don't want to be the coach of this team, but as as a starting point, he wanted to um, make sure he got some things right. And so it's culture building. And I think the really cool thing is, you know, if uh, I was at another club in another league, I'd probably have to wear a suit and be stuck up in an office, which is not a bad thing. But you don't have the, the ability to uh, do all the things on, on all the various levels, whether it be operations, sponsorship, sales, uh, player recruitment that you can do um, here in, in, in Memphis. And so it's very much a learning process too. Tim, what does it feel like to transition from on the field, competing in all these games, playing with the national team, uh, to now being responsible for signing players, contracts, being that sporting director? What have you found easy? What's been difficult? Uh, I think that's that's an important uh, you know thing for, for players who are currently playing to, to know what, what to expect. Yeah. I found budgets difficult because, <laughs> you know, I, I, I always tease uh, poor Eric Smith at, at, at uh, Colorado is a dear friend of mine and he's pretty much my mentor now. And, you know, I always tease him when I was playing, I would call him and say, boy, just go get the play. Like this player wants to come to Colorado, go get him. And like, and, and, and we'd have these back and forth arguments. He'd always win by the way. And then now I called him when I got to Memphis, I went, Oh, right. That's how budgets work. Okay. You don't just, you know, one of your players doesn't say, go get another player and you just go do it. It has to, you know, (laughs) so, uh, that's been, you know, it's been tricky and fun and it's like a puzzle, right? It's like, Hey, we need more help here, but it's going to cost more money. Okay. We go get that, but we have to change some things around. And it's, um, you know, I think what, what we all do in soccer, you have a, a master's degree or a PhD in soccer from all of our time. And, um, that's good. The knowledge is good. It's how you apply it. And so basically I had all this plethora of knowledge and now it's just about learning how to apply it in, in the technical sense. One of the things you just mentioned was culture, right? Is being a part of building a culture. Mm-hmm. What is important to you about that? What 
what are the aspects of the culture that you are trying to build there, Tim, at Memphis 901? Um, yeah, it's it's the one thing that keeps me up most at night is, is you know, I'm a big culture. I believe in culture. Um, you know, when I look around uh, clubs around the world, you have players who were born um, – right next to the stadium, right? Their mom and dad or their dad took them to the stadium and they grew up loving the team or they came through the academy, right? And they finally got signed to a first team contract and got to be on the plane or the bus or the team. Like that automatically buys you into the club. We don't have that here, right? Um, there's a lot, this, this league is very transient, very fluid, a lot of one-year contracts, one year with options. And so players are maybe in Memphis this year, St. Louis next year and Hartford the next year. And so, that's the one piece for me that I'm just like, I bang my head against the wall tirelessly trying to figure out how do we build culture? How do we build a togetherness, a, a belief in like, this is more than just me being here for a year. Like I care about Memphis. I want to win. And so uh, I don't have the answer yet, but it's, it's one thing that we're, we're desperately trying to achieve. And maybe a, a, for you, being the sporting director and also having the ability to play as well, too, allows you to kind of mesh those two things. Of how, how do we build the culture in the locker room, on the pitch, but also in who we are becoming as a club? And, and that's right. And look, I think you hit the nail on the head there. That was, that was one of the – for me, we had an ownership group and they had opinions on why they wanted me to play. That was the overriding theme for me is like – as I build culture, you can't just be up in the director's box in a suit and say, I want the team to play this way. I want guys to care. And the, o- the only way you can really do that is get next to a guy and be in the trenches and sweat with them and cry with them and be a part of um, the wins and the losses. And, that's, and that for me was like, that's more impactful than just being upstairs. Well, you touched on it there. The, the paradox of, of owning a team and playing and being the sporting director that that's unique a lot many people don't get that chance so is, is that all part of it how what inspired you to come out of retirement was it to get that feel of oh now i know what makes this guy tick um i might get him that contract you know what wh- what are those conversations like what is going through your mind yeah i mean that was a big part of it for me was that i simply wanted to uh, be able to drive culture, you know, to get, look, I love playing. We all love playing. If someone put, put a ball out in the park, we'd kick, kick it around with our kids or our best friends. We love playing. I love to compete. So I, I wasn't ever going to get too far away from that, but more so than anything, I, I wanted to, I wanted the team to, to uh, be successful. And so I felt like that was the best way for me to uh, help create the culture drive at home uh, is to be in the thick of it. Like it wasn't this thing where I was thinking I'm the savior and I'm going to be the best player. And it had nothing to do with that. It, it had everything to do with, trying to um, lift up other people around me and the other players and give the, help them find their voice within the team. And, and, you know, that was, it's hard. I think, that, I think I knew going into it that there would be some conflict of interest, right? You're in the dressing room with a guy who you may or may not pick up his contract. You may or may not get given him as much money as he thought he should have. Right. And so you're having to like also have these player conversations with the guy. So, Look, they're gonna. I know they're gonna be reserved. They're not gonna. You know, I tell them all the time. If I do something wrong, yell at me, and they're like, "That ain't happening," you know. So, I gotta know, Tim. What what's recover like? Recovery like these days? Because horrendous. That just horrendous. seems. I mean, knowing you and the intensity that you bring to everything that you do, 
these games, it doesn't matter what game you're playing in, you know, you could be playing with your kids at the park, sure. you're going to go 100%. Yeah. And so um, I can't imagine that these recoveries... It's, t- it's, it's hard. It's it's not, you're not supposed to be playing at this age. It hurts. So, uh, you know, th- I played back-to-back games the other weekend, which I, I had said I wasn't going to going into it, but I just felt the need. Um, but now, usually I take about two weeks in between games, you know, all things being equal, and it gives me enough time to recover, you know, one week of just shutting it down completely after the game. And then the next week starting my physiotherapy just to get ready for the, you know, for the weekend. <laughs> oh my God. Tim, Tim, you, you wear many hats. Um, and, and I'm really curious to think, uh, to know what you think about situations, um, like uh, Andrea Pirlo, who, you know, retires, uh, wasn't involved in coaching whatsoever. Right. Uh, maybe coaches for two months. If you if you want to go two months for a hundred twenty three <laughs> level and gets offered the head UVA job, uh, you look at our country: Eddie Pope, Kobe Jones, Agujanyewu, um, Demarcus Beasley. You can go down the line of of black players, people of color who played for our national team. Look at the opportunities. Where are they? Um, what are your thoughts on on uh, you know getting that that initial chance? to be groomed as the next U.S. men's national team manager or the next big um, MLS manager? Uh, sure. where, where, where can we improve and how do, you, how do you foresee that changing? Well, I think as we talk about uh, social injustice and what that looks like as we move forward, one of, the, one of the, the key points that I've touched on is like I always think you have to, you have to move the needle uh, in your own backyard, right, before you do it on this grand scale. Like I can't go, I can't go talk to FIFA about something until I figure out how – Memphis 901 FC is going to do it right. And that's, and that's my, my priority. And so, look, I think, I, I think in, in America uh, alone, I don't think there's enough black and brown faces uh, in the stands, you know, and that's if you go to a U.S. men's national team game or an MLS game or a USL game, there's not, there's, there's not a lot of black and brown faces um, watching our games. There uh, isn't a lot of black head coaches, uh, black assistant coaches, black executives. And so we have to do a better job uh, from the inside in terms of giving those opportunities. You know, I know, I know the NFL, and you can say what you want about the uh, the Rooney Rule. You know, there's there's they tried to create and implement change, and until that happens, until uh, people of color are given opportunities at, at the next level, right? At the whether it be in commentary or as an executive or as a coach, you know, they're they're not going to do it. They we we need to see. We need to see role models at that level, and we and we need to give people of color an opportunity. And I, I use the example all the time. Well, I, my best friend when I was at Everton was Sylvain Distin. He was a a black player from uh, from Paris, and you know he was he he has the most appearances of any foreign player in Premier League history. Uh, played for Portsmouth, won the FA Cup, played for Man City, played for Bournemouth, played for Everton, and he was a monster, a monster of of a player, and and well respected. And I said. Why don't you go into coaching? And he laughed at me. He said, "Tell me how many, tell me how many people look like me coaching." And I just thought, and that wasn't this year. That was that was four years ago, you know. And so he's discouraged to go into coaching or mm-hmm. to put the effort. Like, okay, I'll go pay for my the, my badges and spend time away from my family to get my badges to be a coach for what? To to do what? That's what he's telling me, right? And so we yeah we have to do a better job systematically um, through all of our organizations in hiring people of color who. Um, you know, have the experiences you talked about with Eddie Pope and and, and Kobe and, and Gooch and Bees and um, yourself and and my, and me and, and and how can we provide these opportunities? That's that's the critical question, and so we have to stop asking the question and actually answer it. 
Mm-hmm. And you might be in a position now to be able to provide some of those opportunities. Are you taking that to heart and really trying to instill that in what you're doing in, in Memphis? Yeah, look, I think we need to bring, we need to do a better job uh, in bringing soccer to the streets uh, here, uh, to the inner cities. And, um, you know, I, I've said all along, you know, our beautiful black and brown children in the streets will, will do and play anything you give them. They want, they want opportunity. They don't want basketball, baseball, football, soccer. They don't care what it is. They just want opportunity. Uh, they want someone to care about them in their community and teach them. And so, uh, yeah, that's, that's something that's very much on the forefront of my plate. Um, you know, also how we, how we create initiatives, uh, from a pricing and ticketing standpoint so that we can, um, you know, from a socioeconomic standpoint, how we can bring in, um, the lower socioeconomic classes to come into our stadium and watch games. And then, yeah, look, from a hiring standpoint, um, I've always been about hiring the best people. And so, um, you know, color be damned, but, but certainly it's, uh, it's on my radar in terms of uh, creating and presenting those opportunities as best I can. Yeah. And now in Memphis on the field, you can do the same thing by inspiring uh, that large black community and population down there to get them to open their eyes and, and experience a game. What's it been like, playing during this COVID-19 mm-hmm. uh, time time where, where everyone's, you know, not able to go outside and socialize and, and yeah. um, live a normal life? Well, it's been, it's been strange in the sense that, um, you know, we're, we're kind of back to business as usual, but like, you know, restaurants and bars are, are closed down and that kind of thing. Look, uh, the, 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 I heard I heard a couple of people critical of of some of the guys in the NBA bubble because they were saying oh this that and the other. Well, John Morant at the Grizzlies said, "Hang on a minute, we've been playing an empty gym since AAU. Like we can do this; it's not a problem." And so the same same for us with these stadiums. You know, the empty stadiums, which I've played behind closed doors before, um, they're obviously a bit eerie and feels like a training game. But to be honest, we've uh, we've played a few games where we've been at max capacity in regards to social distancing, so one thousand, two thousand. And to be honest, I've said. It just feels like a like a rainy Wednesday night where people decided I'm going to stay home and watch it on TV, and a few people trickled to the stadium. So it still feels like an atmosphere. It still feels like a game, and that it's important. Yeah. When you think about long term for the club, I don't know if that's five years for you, if that's ten years, if it's beyond that. But what are some of the goals that you have for the club at, in Memphis 901? Well, look, we want to we want to create it. We want to create a club that is. Uh, player friendly, but also a destination for players, and that one, one they get treated right. Um, but from a competition standpoint, I've, I've said all along I, this year is different because we're, we're in groups as opposed to conferences. But it's just to be a perennial power in the Eastern Conference. You know, is that every year you can expect our name to be, um, you know, one of the last four. Um, again, that takes time. Legacy takes time and patience to build. But that's that from a competition standpoint is, is vital is that we're getting, you know, we're attracting some of the best players and that they want to be here. Tim, this is one of, this is probably going to be the m- most exciting part for me because I've never heard you talk about this. We're going to, we're going to take it back to 2003. Mm-hmm. Okay. Rewind the tape. Rewind. rewind. And <laughs> it, I, you know, I never let it really sink into, to, to, to my brain. Um, where, where you were at this time and what was happening. English premier league champions, Manchester United, Come calling. You're, you've been you've been balling in the in MLS for the Metro Stars. Um, what was that first impression of arguably the greatest manager of all time, Sir Alex Ferguson? It was daunting. I was a young boy, man. I was 23. I didn't know a whole lot. Probably at the time, thought I knew way more than I did, and um, certainly from a footballing standpoint, I had no idea what was to come. And so, you know, I left the Metro Stars and uh, in in July, mid season, and I joined I joined uh, Manchester United under under 
summer tour of preseason. And it was like, everything was heightened. Um, you know, the players I was playing with were rock stars. They were world renowned. They were world cup heroes. They were premier league winners they were champions league winners. And then Sir Alex Ferguson was, you know, the, uh, goes down as the greatest manager of all time. And certainly one of the top three. And, um, it, it was just so incredibly daunting for, as a, as a young man that to be in his presence, he was, he was uh, everything you can imagine. He was tough. He was compassionate at times, more tough than compassion, but um, just an ability to, to man manage. And, you know, you talked about playing for a manager who's seen everything. Like there was never a day he woke up. He was like, Oh, that's a surprise. Like he knew everything. Well, you, you, you say that, but I don't think a manager ever experienced um, a, a U.S. American goalkeeper coming into a locker room with Tourette syndrome. Mm-hmm. And, what mm-hmm. was that uh, adjustment like? Because you talk about Ryan Giggs, Paul Scholes, Roy Keane, Gary Neville, some of the biggest names Manchester United have ever seen. Entering that dynamic with Tourette syndrome, which is obviously extremely rare. Sure. Did you? How did that feel? What was that? Um, were you welcomed? Did you feel any, you know, discomfort? No, never, never because of my TS. You know, I think that um, everybody was very welcoming and, and pretty, pretty understanding. It wasn't really talked about to be quite honest. Um, it was just more, it was just more accepted. And I had, I had learned to accept it in myself and I knew how to kind of operate in different, different rooms and that type of thing. So it was never really, it was never really that big of an issue for me. Um, I was just trying to keep my head above water from a football standpoint. And, and, and most of these guys, they were pretty, uh, they were pretty solid with me. So it never came up and I never got made fun of. It was never an issue. It was more, you know, the, the public and the papers and the fans, you know, my, my teammates, they were only concerned with one thing. So those players that Charlie just listed off, is there someone in particular that in the moment you were like, wow, I can't believe I'm playing with this player or was it none of those players? Was it somebody else that was maybe on the team at that time? Well, I think you had like a, you know, you had a very young Cristiano Ronaldo, um, you know, one of the best, probably the best defender in the world at the time, Rio Ferdinand, um, you know, it was him and Alessandro Nesta, um, were two of the best defenders in the world. And, um, Ryan Giggs was special to the Premier League because of just the games he played and all the all the big moments. For me, then and even now, um, one of the greatest, uh, most uh, in depth people, but certainly players I've ever been around is it was Roy Keane. You know, as a captain, he was he was the greatest leader and the greatest um, performer on a big stage that I had ever that I've ever witnessed. And even now I, I, I look back with fondness. I, I think the world of Roy and how he led, how he led his teams and it wasn't always pretty and nice, but he was uh, just so demanding. And I learned that and, and I, I carried that through my career because it was, uh, you know, the fact that I hold that very dear that I was able to share a dressing room with Roy and, uh, and learn from him because it was, you don't get that anywhere else. What were those training sessions like? You, you talked about Cristiano Ronaldo, mm-hmm. uh, Ruud van Nistelrooy, <laughs> mm-hmm. Ollie Gunner, who's the now now yeah. Manchester United manager, and Louis yeah. Saha. Louis Saha, yeah. And Wayne Rooney, a young Wayne Rooney coming Wayne in Rooney, the, the following Scholes. year. Yeah. So yeah. what were those training sessions like? Intense. I mean, like, you know, it's the, probably the greatest training sessions I've ever been a part of. I mean, everything is done uh, at a level 10. You know, there's never and, – and it's player-driven. The manager doesn't have to come out and – and yell and scream. It's player driven. You know, Rude wants to be the best. Scolzi wants to be the best. Roy, everybody wants to be the best. And so, um, you never had to, you never had to needle a guy and, and say, come on. It, it was, it, you, you got left behind. Like Manchester United is a club where if you don't perform, you get left behind. And there's no like, hey, sorry, there's no big parade. It's just like, all right, man, we paid 10 million for you. Didn't work out. We'll probably recoup, 
you know, 8 million of that. And then we'll go buy someone else. And thanks for coming. Like, that's just how it works. Do you feel like going there at that point in your career? Cause you already were, you know, knowing you, Tim, you're a self-motivated person. You had that within you, but do you feel like seeing that from other people too, on that level throughout the entire team at that time in your career was critical for your, your growth? Yeah. Look, I, I, I never, um, I never try and regret opportunities that I've been given. And so like being at Manchester United, it was just, it was such a growing moment. It was, I absorbed so much and the good and the bad. And it really set a strong platform from where I was going to go at my career, both club and country. And, um, I often, but I often say just the way my career turned out, um, because you talk about the big, the, the big manager and the big players. I don't know if I was able to take it all in because I was still trying to find myself. I, I often say it would have been it would have been very interesting for me to have gone to Manchester United at 32, right? Because now I've had some trials and tribulations. I've learned. I've kind of found my footing, who I am, found my own voice. Um, and I think things would have been differently. Forget on the pitch. It, it would have just been – I'd have been able to take it in differently because when I got there, it was just like a whirlwind of, of, of things and people. Uh, but again, that being said, it helped set a foundation that I, I'm very happy I got early on because I think I, I, I credit a lot of my success to that moving forward. Well, you spoke about the whirlwind. You're still trying to find yourself, yet you beat one of the greatest teams in history, Arsenal, making a crucial penalty save in the Community Shield ahead of your first Premier League season. What was the reaction like in the locker room? Did you know how good the Gunners were about to be? Um, and and what, what was that experience like? Well, yeah, we kind of knew, uh, you know, the Gunners, we didn't know they'd be invincible, but they, they were on that trend, right? Like it was Manchester United and Arsenal, neck and neck, right? So for years. And so uh, I knew that. I knew the rivalry. Again, I was keep trying to keep my head above water, use my raw talent, uh, my energy and my emotion. And, you know, obviously I played well on that particular day. Interestingly enough, though, <clears throat> I talk about learning, right? Interestingly enough, Manchester United was – was a club that expected to win trophies. Yes, they celebrated it and they popped champagne and they took pictures and they jumped up and down. But that was it. You put your suit on and you go home because that's what you're supposed to do. And that's what players at Manchester United would talk about. Like, this is what we, this is what we do. Like, don't be surprised when we win trophies. And, you know, it was interesting because, again, coming from where I came from, up until I don't know when it was, it was sometime during, during my time at Manchester United. They were. They had. They had gone on a on a, a, a semifinal unbeaten streak of like, I don't know, something stupid. Twenty. They were like unbeaten in twenty semifinals. And the and the rhetoric in the dressing room was like, yeah, guys, we just don't lose semifinals. Like they had lost a couple finals, but they were basically like, we get to a semifinal, we don't lose. That's just how it is. And it and every time they went to a semifinal, they won. And it was like twenty in a row or something. And so like, you start to get that mentality. And you're like, whoa, like you realize like this isn't normal. Like this is I'm I'm, I'm part of something here that's really different. Yeah. Was that an incredible, um, to, to have that experience so early in your career in England, do you feel like that set you up to hunt that down to really desire something like get to those championship games throughout your time there? Yeah, it was, uh, it was definitely, again, I was, I was pleased that I was able to win a couple of trophies in my, I think two trophies in my three years at, um, at Manchester United. And then, yeah, it, it, it allowed me to like, taste that hunger for success and, and, and want to keep pushing on. And it definitely, it, it definitely wet my appetite for like, you know, some people don't even get to one cup final. So I, I was so appreciative of that, but like, you know, you then begin to realize that it's not your, your God given divine right to, to, 
you know, win a championship or win a trophy. And so yeah, you keep, you keep chasing it for sure. When, when you signed for United, it, every, the, everybody in the United States was all positive. I can't believe you're, you're going to the Premier League champions, but all the talk wasn't positive across the, across the world. Uh, what were some of those not so nice things that were said about you when you got there and when things weren't going well? Yeah. So, um, <clears throat> there was, you know, I think as an American, you're always fighting that. I mean, you, you yourself fought it, right? And mm-hmm. you, you get the rub of the green and the benefit of the doubt as long as things are going well. But when they're not, then you're just a, another American who can't who can't cut it. And so, obviously, that was part of the conversation. You know, I think in uh, in the newspapers regarding my TS, I think were, when I first flew over there, there was uh, there was an article that said United United signed goalkeeper or something, which was just again ignorance, and I didn't pay it too much mind at the time. I had you know, I was, I was signed for Manchester United. So nothing was really going to, was going to dim that light. Um, but there was just a lot of, there's a, when you play in the Premier League at the highest level, you're, there's just going to be a lot surrounding. So you have to play well, but you also have to figure out how to handle yourself as a, as a person off the field. Should we move on to the, the team that has your heart? Yes. Over sure. England? <laughs> Let, let's move on. Let's move on to Everton, right? Yes. And yes. your time there. Uh, you go to a team that, you took a, a club from 11th place to finish in sixth place there. Uh, what was that year like to come in there and really try to help transform who this club was and, and lead them into uh, a higher place in the Premier League? Yeah, look, it's no secret. Everton is is well, the love of my life. And um, I, I went there needing a fresh start and uh, you know spoke with David Moyes, who became – Again, everything to me as a manager, and uh, he's dear to me to this day. And he just said, "Look, here's here's." I went through the ups and downs of three years at, at United, which is normal. And he just "Here's the keys to the car. You know, you're gonna you're gonna play 35 games." So um, that gave me a lot of real ownership into the club, and it was a club that when I walked through the door, I felt a sense of belonging. You know, it's it's called the People's Club, and um, everybody, everybody there was just like, it felt like home and it's so hard to describe to uh, people on the outside. But when I walked through those doors and I hadn't never been there, it was like, it was just like this almost magical moment in a movie where it's like, yep, this is, this is home. Now. This is where I belong. This is home. And, uh, it's all, it's always felt like that. And so it's, you know, it, it, it I was so thankful for those three years I had at United, but like, when I went there, even on loan and look, I don't think United had any plans to bring me back either, but I, I went there. I'm loan. I went. Yeah, I'm not leaving. I'm. I'm staying. I'm staying here. I'm, there's, there's no other option. Does it still feel like that to this day when you go back? That same feeling of like. Well, no, true, true story. So, <clears throat> I hadn't been back. I hadn't been back <clears throat> for various reasons, but I hadn't been back uh, to Everton since the day I left uh, in 2016 to come to Colorado. And this Jan, this March, I went to the Man United Everton game uh, uh, as part of my ambassadorship, and it was the first time I'd been back in. I think four years, four or five years. And I tell you no word of a lie. I walked out. Uh, I was doing a, a, t- a piece for television. I walked down, uh, down the tunnel up the stairs and I was just on pitch side. And I text right at that moment. I text, uh, I hadn't been there in four years, text my best friend. And I went, and I was like, this feels like home. And it was, again, it wasn't any, it wasn't anything earth shattering. It was literally, I was standing at that place that I hadn't been in four years. And I was like, my soul feels like very mm-hmm. peace and calm. And I was like, this is like, this is where I'll always belong. And it just, it kind of reaffirmed that because I had been away for so long. So that was good. Well, it's, it's funny you, you brought up earlier, Manchester and I never lose in semifinals. That's that they get there. They're not losing. But when you're in Everton, 
Yeah. You get that revenge. April yes. 19th comes, 2009, FA Cup semifinal. You save two penalties against your former club, Manchester United, um, to send Everton to the final against Chelsea. How good did that feel? Uh, I tell you what, I, it was after the game. It was, uh, I, I had, you know, for me personally, I'd slay the dragon. It was, it was that, at that moment, it was easy. To, I closed that chapter. It was just like, it was such an epic moment at Wembley, 90,000 people, um, both sets of fans, one who I once played for and one, one who I played for at the time. And for me, it, it was very much my family and my close friends who knew all the, you know, the goods and the highs and lows you go through. That was a moment where I was able to just say, right, Demon has been slayed. I'm done. Like, <laughs> yeah. move on. And it was great. You know, and obviously it's Man- Manchester United in the semifinal. Like, it's special, right? So, yeah. We have exercised the demons. <laughs> For sure. Uh, Got to bring Ace Ventura in somehow. You had to. You spoke about how special Merseyside is to you. But I think Charlie and I really need to know What'd you learn about banter when you were in those English locker rooms? Ah, uh, it's a beautiful thing. Yeah, I miss, <laughs> I miss that banter. It's it's it, it's just nonstop. Like people call it banter as if it's like, you know, this singular thing. It's just it's just nonstop. It's all day, every day. It's on the phone. It's in the dressing room. It's in the canteen. It's on the training ground. It's just like, yeah. I mean, you realize how special it is to be there. You know, to be in the in the locker room with these guys, and it never stops. And so it's pretty awesome. It's different than anything you had experienced oh, in the U.S. before. Especially, it's different in the U.K., but it's also different with Scousers. Like Scousers are just a different breed, and they, they have their own they have their own banter, which is which is again special. Let's just yeah. call it that. We yeah. would ask you some things, but we we better keep those talks. Yeah, you don't want to know. With you oh, we guys we in had the some good room. banter in the locker room with the U.S. Men's National. Yeah, for sure that. we did. For sure um, we did. Speaking of that, your first cap, Ecuador, March two thousand two. You had hair back then. I did. Um, yeah, I'm, what, I'm what were your, what were your memories from that match? Uh, yeah, it's, everyone remembers their first, you know, the first game, and it was at it was at Legion Field in Birmingham, which I don't even know if the men's national team has played a game there since. I'm, I'm probably not, um, but maybe. And it was uh, it was special just because my mom flew down for the game, and um, you know, you're, you're hoping you're. I'm, you play for youth national teams and you go into full national team camp and you're part of the squad, but you don't play. And then you, you kind of know you're going to get your first game, right? The coach tells you, Hey, you're going to play on the weekend. And it was, uh, it was daunting. But again, I felt like even as nervous as I was, I was ready. You know, I was like, oh, this is my time. I want to do this. You know, I had an arrogance to me. So uh, I remember Eddie Lewis scored, who became a very good friend of mine down the road. Cause we used to you know, lived and played in England together um, and kept a clean sheet. And so very, very special moment nervous i don't know i i haven't heard you talk about being nervous before did that happen often i was jordan i, I was i was and still am very nervous before every you game. are mm-hmm. it's something that do you do you feel like that is a part of you that is it has to be there in order for you to know that it's meaningful i think nerves are good i think anxiety and nerves are good i think that i think it allows i think it tells your it tells your your heart, your mind, and your soul, that something's important to you, right? Like if you, yeah. if you don't, if you get ready for a game and it doesn't feel like you're not nervous, then it's not that important to you. Like it's important to me that I do well for my club, that I play well for myself. And, and so like, yeah, I, I, the absence of anxiety or nerves or butterflies for a game would mean that I wasn't as prepared as I should be. And I feel like there's no pressure. I feel like there's no pressure if you don't feel that. Correct. Yeah, yeah. pressure is good. I don't know if you guys feel this too, but I feel that same type of nerve doing TV too. And I think that's mm-hmm. one of the reasons that I like doing TV is because it makes me feel For those sure. player nerves that <laughs> we used to yeah. get. 
or I used yeah. to get. You're still getting, Tim, but um, you're right. You're right. Yeah. You know, you one of my greatest memories of all time um, is that 2009 Confederation Cup run uh, that we had. You won the Golden Glove um, that tournament. Where does this tournament experience rank for you? Because obviously for me, it's the greatest. I I, I didn't get the chance to, to partake in a World Cup, but, um, you know, we it, it felt like after that tournament, we could win a World Cup because we we stood toe-to-toe with the best. Um, so I'm curious to know where it ranks for you. Yeah, I mean, look, that team was special, right? Charlie, we had, uh, you know, that the whole lead-in to qualification, uh, Confeds Cup, and then the World Cup, that was a very special team coached by Bob Bradley. And the players we had on the team um, were really finding themselves. And, um, you know, it was young. Some of us were in our prime, but even even the guys who were in their prime were on the on the beginning side of their prime. And so it was just a collection of great guys who loved each other, who were willing to go to battle and roll up their sleeves and, you know, go into the lion's den together and never bat an eye. And it was, you know, you talk about the tournament. And I think what was special, the disappointing part and the special part was – um, very rarely does the U.S. men's national team have a have an opportunity to win a major tournament, you know. And and this was the this was our first opportunity to win a major tournament, and it we were so close and like beating you know beating Spain who had who had number one in the world on thirty six games unbeaten or something like that. Like and then being up two 0 against Brazil, it was almost like like who wrote this script, you know? And so, um, but being so close, it, obviously. Uh, there's always that what if after the fact, you know, uh, 10 years later. So, uh, but, but again, to be a part of, be a part of a group um, that, that really set a standard for me in my, in my career and in my own mind, like this is, this is what a, a, a real group of togetherness looks like. Does that experience in that tournament rank pretty high for you? And your you have a plethora of things that you've accomplished, right? But where does that stand as far as, the the teams that you had gotten to play for and the experiences that you have with the national team. Yeah, look, I think that I think that 2000 again, I you could we could bookend it somehow 2008 to 2010. That group of players uh, culminating in the World Cup, it was uh, it was probably the most special group that I've played on with the national team. Again, just because of who the players were, where they played, um, everybody. There was so much respect amongst the group. There was no. There was no sex or fashions, fashions or whatever. It was just no, um, no, no bitterness, clicks. no clicks. Yeah. Like we had groups of guys who loved to hang out together, but it wasn't like oh they're over there doing whatever. Like they, everybody loved the next guy, and it was like I, I just don't know if I've played on, particularly national teams. National teams are harder. Uh, I don't think I've played on on teams that that had that. And, you know, and, and then again, it was. The, the you know Bob Bradley did an amazing job with that team and the way he coached us and 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 drove us and and asked more of us and you know he wanted guys to be better leaders and better people and better and and he got the most out of that group and it was again it was just to be a part of it set a standard for me okay you guys are both on on that team so we got you have to give us a story guys like we got to know something that people don't know something well, for for me, an it was, experience uh, the, doesn't have be- to be on the field. Yeah, this it's off the field for okay. sure. Um, okay, let's go. You know, we we win we we win uh, the semifinal. It's it's actually my birthday. Um, you know, Michael Jackson died, uh, so it was just a a really random oh weird time. Yeah. But um, you know, we're all we're all pumped, and we get to the final. We're up two zero. I think I think everyone it crept, it crept into everyone's head that we had won. We're two zero against Brazil. We're not giving up that lead. We just beat Spain. We're going to win. We lose. Um, 
I think we were still all proud of what we achieved, you know, because we were playing with house money at that point. Uh, we had just made it so far, but I think the, the dream was realized, hey, we can do this as a country. Um, after we go out with the South African team and, and Timmy's teammate, uh, Stephen Pinar at the time, was just giving me a piggyback ride around uh, <laughs> everywhere. So uh, that that's one moment that I just found like hilarious and, and the whole group was together. We, when he talks about this team, there was no divide from man one to man 23. It was a group. We were all in it together. And, and that's why I remember it being so special because we were, there were no, uh, you know, qualms within the team. Like everybody was, was bought in. It's cool to hear that from an outsider's perspective too, because it seemed that way, right? Watching you guys play and watching you perform and the celebrations of goals that were happening and how everybody was a part of those, right? Like those are the pictures that come up in my brain. And to hear you guys talk about how united the, the team was is a really cool thing to know that, that it was actually that way. Mm-hmm. It was awesome. Yeah. You, you, you backed up Casey Keller at the 2006 uh, World Cup. And then went on to be the starting goalkeeper for 2010-2014. That Algeria goal, 2010. I I remember being on the couch, um, (laughs) you know, watching uh, from from France. And you start the pass to Landon, the outlet pass. Uh, You see the ball hit the back of the net. How did you feel? Try 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 and help me understand that feeling when you guys are rushing to the corner, you get to the locker room, you, you did it. You did the impossible. Yeah, like, like in the moment, <clears throat> I've kind of always been this way because I'm more of a pessimist on the field. Like <clears throat> we scored the goal and I was excited. I didn't get the chance to run the full length of the field, nor would I. Uh, and, and one of the craziest <laughs> celebrations that I've, I've, I've seen or, or been a part of. But, you know, at that moment, it's like, okay, this game has been chaotic. It's been a tennis match. And like, now we still have to figure out a way to see this out. Like my my immediate mind didn't go to like, hey, we just won a game. Can't wait to party afterwards. It was like, we got the goal. Now we got to shut up shop. And uh, so that for that for me was the immediate. But afterwards, you know, having our captain Carlos Bocanegra address President Clinton and him taking off his blazer and roll up his sleeves and drinking a beer with us, it was just like, you know, if if you could bottle that feeling and emotion, as you know, of of giving everything you have mentally and physically not being able to give anymore sitting on a wooden bench tape still on not having enough energy to take your tape off and just being there with your brothers like that's we would we would all be you know trillionaires if we could bottle that because it is such a intense emotion uh that you you can't just get you can't just go outside and and run a couple miles and get that it's it's special and so yeah the aftermath of that game was crazy that I feel like there weren't as many keeper cams back then. So when goals were scored, it was like just on the <laughs> team. Sure. But I want to know <laughs> Tim Howard's celebrations during these, you know. I'm sure you've had a few different uh, one, I, your go-to I have ones. Few. I'm usually I'm, – I'm either very subdued and like just like exhale or I just go crazy and yell and scream and, uh, you know, pump my fist or whatever. It's, 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 not, it's not that special or important because uh, the, the cool stuff's happening like 100 yards down the field. Right. In 2014, you set a World Cup record. I think you probably remember that game, right? Uh, 15 saves against yeah. Belgium. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Two to one, extra time loss in the process. You went viral. Uh, did you ever think uh, you'd go viral as a soccer player? Like that seems like such a, I'm just seeing the, the videos now, right? Of you saving everything. Yeah, it was it was it was hard to not be in the moment. It was hard to uh, remove myself from from the enormity of that game. Also, as a team, you know, it was it was um, 
it's only years later that you look back and think, oh, what a crazy time, right? Because like, that's what we get paid to do. And, and, and you, you, are you going to have a 15, 16 save game? Probably not very often. But like you still, it's what, you know, job is to, to organize and talk and make saves you're supposed to make and help the team in any way you can. I, look, the, the special part for me about that game beyond my saves was, you know, this was a really good Belgian team. This is their golden generation. And um, we went toe to toe with them. We had opportunities to win the game. We, you know, um, you know, we have, it was Wando's miss. It was um, Julian's goal right at the end, even at, um, even at two one, you know, we, we, there was a train, we had a set piece that we worked on this training ground for days and weeks and months and it came off. It literally came off. We, we played it short behind the wall to deuce. He hits a really good shot in Courtois, you know, at, you know, a, a world-class keeper makes a brilliant save and, and keeps him in the game. And like, you know, you got to think on the night we go to penalties, the way our luck was going, we, we would have won, you know? So uh, that game has a lot of really good memories. It's tough, but when you lose to a better opponent, that's okay. Is there one save in that game that sticks out to you? Mm, yeah, I think it was uh, uh, it, because of how, kind of crazy and unorthodox it was. I think it was in the second half against Kevin Morales, who was my Everton teammate. I made a save out near the edge of the box. Uh, I went the wrong way. I was probably in no man's land. I stuck my toe out, hits the bottom of my cleat and goes out for a corner. And I, and I have a picture of it and he was my teammate. And it was just probably a save I shouldn't have made. Um, you know, I was, in the, I was in the wrong place at maybe the right time. And <laughs> I just happened, you know. Well, you became Secretary of Defense uh, during that Belgium match. You've had plenty of interactions with presidents. You spoke about Clinton uh, coming into the dressing room, but President Obama, you've been on the on the phone with him uh, a couple of times, and then current President Democratic nominee uh, Joe Biden um, in South Africa as well. What what have those interactions been like? Special, you know. I went to the. I think I was. I think I've been to the White House three times. I can't remember. I I went after the Olympics in two thousand and met President Bush and. Um, Met Obama and Clinton as we did, and and then uh, you know uh, Vice President at the time Joe Biden, and so you know just just being an American and, and and being able to be so close to the leader of the free world and and talk and laugh and you know obviously it's an awkward laugh because anytime I'm pregnant you just kind of like <laughs> chuckle you know but 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 still it's it, memories and pictures and like you know like I just said I, I've been able I, I've met I, I've met three presidents U.S. presidents face to face like I think that puts me probably in like the one percentile maybe you know like that, that like doesn't happen so it's just those are very proud moments this one is a little bit um tough to ask i think because mm -hmm. i think it's still a hard thing for all of us to like wrap our brains around but there's been some time since it happened so trinidad back in 2017 this was your last appearance uh with the national team mm. what do you remember from that night and how did you deal with the disappointment thereafter mm. Yeah, it's a it's a tough question. It'll always be a tough question because it's a black stain on on a lot of our resumes. Um, look, for me, it's um, I've, I've I've discussed very little with even even my my closest friends. It was um, it was quite possibly um, the toughest moment of my life, and if if it wasn't the first, it was the second. And, um, and I speak for, just for me personally and, and, uh, I've never dealt with, uh, depression. I've never dealt with any of those emotions, um, on any large scale. And, you know, I think after the game, um, 
after the game, you know, I, I sat in my room with Demarcus, uh, who's my roommate, Beasley, and we didn't talk. And and you're packing your bag, but uh, you're you're almost kind of like now there's we'll, we'll get another chance. We're gonna crack at this. We'll play the game tomorrow. Something like we're not getting on the plane to go home. Like th- this isn't. It was almost like you're you're walking around like a petulant kid because whatever just happened couldn't have possibly happened. And um, you know, I, I think I think my disdain for some of the uh, the negative the negative comments surrounding it. I don't think were were it. The way the way I, I I try and articulate it is this: as a fan, you have a right to be upset, but as a fan, you'll also have another World Cup. Um, I, I wasn't myself, and a few of my other teammates weren't, and it wasn't for a lack of trying. Could the results have been better? Sure, um, but it wasn't for a lack of trying. And uh, for that to know to know at the time that would be the last. Yeah, you know, I, I you know. By, by my own accounts, I had, I had an amazing career. I, I, I surpassed every um, uh, every goal that I ever set for myself, particularly on the on the, on the international stage. And uh, to know that that would be the last time I kicked the ball for my country um, was heartbreaking. I, I, I there were very few moments in my life where I could actually I, I could actually uh, you know feel my heart broken in two, and that and that was one of them. That that will never go away. And so, you know, I. I People have a right to to criticize and all that, and sure. And, and as athletes, when you when you you're not up to it, um, you get criticized, and that's okay. But it was uh, it was a hard pill to swallow. I, and I remember, um, you know, going back to um, I remember going back to my my house in Florida. Uh, Pablo Mastrano was was my head coach, and he kind of knew what I was going through, and he just said, "Take a few days." And I and I took three days, and I just I I don't I, I was in a fog. I was I was depressed. I didn't really understand. Um, the the magnitude of, of of I knew I understood the magnitude of the situation I didn't understand how that could be the end you know I, I just I, I literally walked around in a haze for three days and I didn't speak to anybody and didn't sleep and uh, it was difficult and again like I said that's that's the the bed we make you perform you get praised and if you don't you um, you get criticized and so but but again I think that it was just it was just more of the um, for me, the the personal attacks on both myself, and my teammates, because for me, I, it it really it was to hell with you and and, and damn that because you don't actually know what I'm yeah. feeling, right. and, and 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 I'm a fan, I'm a fan by yeah. the way, but but it was it was no no no, you're upset that we're not going to Russia, but you're gonna have Qatar, you're gonna have mm. USA, you're gonna yeah. have the next one. I don't have any of those; those are gone for me. So to hell with you, and and that's kind of where that was, and so. But it'll always be a it'll always be a black stain on on our on our, our resumes. Honestly, Tim, thanks for sharing that because I think course, that's yeah. really honest, and I yeah. think people, I think it's nice having a different perspective, right? And knowing what that was like in those sure. moments and how, you know, I think a lot of the times as athletes, we are can be looked, we can look at other people as just not human. For right? sure, yeah. And sure. Um, you were as hurt, if not more hurt, right, from that that moment so thanks for sharing that absolutely my pleasure and and that's why you're you're the goat when it comes to american goalkeepers you're the goat i mean thank you brother you're the all-time leader in caps and wins um and you talk about the successful lineage of u.s men's national team keepers tony miola brad friedel casey keller uh so i we have to ask uh when you when you look at uh, the current number one uh zach stefan where what's his potential what advice would you have for him to, to, to ensure he can reach and maximize um, his, his potential. And, and, you know, just looking down the line, 
what does he need to do to ensure that success? Yeah, look, I, I'm, I'm proud to be a part of that lineage. I think it's, uh, you know, the goalkeepers who came before me set, set such a high standard, and I tried to live up to that and ultimately surpass it. And I, I look, I, I think the sky's the limit for Zach, you know, what I would say. And, and he and I, I thankfully have a, a good relationship with him, and uh, I, I'm a fan of his. It's, it takes, I think you have to be willing to commit yourself to the hard work day in and day out for, you know, two decades. And you know, be able to handle criticism and 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 play better more often than you don't. And um, you know, when when you do that, good things come. But it's only it's it's being being talented and, and having a good season is the first step of a really really long journey. And so, uh, I think he has the mental fortitude to do that. And, but again, it, it it takes time. And so, I'm excited. Obviously, as I said, I'm a fan of, of the team now. And so, I'm just excited to watch them succeed, watch him succeed, and, and hopefully carry on that, that legacy. So, Tim, you know the highs and the lows of qualifying in this region. What do you think of the newly announced CONCACAF World Cup qualifying format, and how do you think the young group will fare? Well, look, I, I think that, um, you know, I like the format in the sense that whatever gets us back out there uh, is important. Right now, right now, I, I, don't, I don't know if it's, you know, the what is important, it's more how, you know, and, and there's going to be protocols and there's going to be different things that look not like they used to. But the fact that we have a, we now have a pathway excites me. Um, and look for the new, look, it's always been difficult to qualify away from home. We know that. Um, or to win matches away from home. Um, look, the, I think the blueprint is the same. You know, win our home matches, go away from home, nick a win or two. Um, you know, draw a couple games. There's no reason we can't win those games, but it's hard. It's, and, and I think that more than anything, the challenge for this new current crop is to, when you play, they, they haven't had a ton of time together. We know that. And um, when you play a, at big clubs across Europe, and then you have to go down to, I won't name the country, and be, be I, I quarantine and, and, and staying in your room in some of these countries won't be a problem because there's nowhere to go can't go outside it's military police it's crabgrass on the pitch it's concrete walls can they can they handle those moments right and it's easy to say yeah we got this but when you live the lap of luxury with a top club team in europe and then you're asked to go down there and dig in and roll your sleeves up it's not always as easy and i think that's a challenge there's a challenge for charlie and myself it's a challenge for any u.s team and so how they handle that will be as far as their success will take them tim a little over a year ago, I remember sitting with you in the front office of the Rapids facility. It was the first day of preseason, and we were making the announcement, right? The announcement that you were going to be retiring from professional soccer. That year, so the retirement itself lasted a little bit. We'll get to that again <laughs> later at some point, right? But that year, and knowing that that was going to be your last year in MLS, did, it, did the year feel different? What was that experience like getting the retirement out of the way so then you could maybe enjoy the season a little bit differently? Yeah, I mean, we did it right. And, uh, you know, I wanted to you know, make sure that I made the announcement so that it didn't get talked about <laughs> throughout the season and become an issue. Uh, well, even not even for everybody, but for, for me, I didn't want to talk about it every week. I wanted to be focused on, on playing and allow me to kind of enjoy the season um, without interference and allowed me to, you know, I knew there'd be the very poignant pinnacle moments of that season, whether it be with my teammates in a game or off the field, with my family and allowed me to enjoy those. Um, and I wanted to go out on my terms. I wanted to, I wanted to, um, 
I wanted to make the announcement and do it the way I wanted to do it. And I felt I owed that to myself and, um, and this, and it, it worked out to, uh, to where I felt really good about, uh, every, everything that I wanted to fall into place did. You, you reference a Bible verse, um, quite a bit to whom much is given much will be required. Um, what does that mean to you and how do you apply it uh, as a player, as a team owner, as a father? Yeah, look, I think that it's something that, uh, that I've lived by for a long time now, you know, since I was in my early twenties and I went over to Manchester United and I wrote it down, um, you know, in my notebook as I was, you know, flying across the Atlantic. And I, I just, you know, it's just something that I feel, I feel like, you know, if you're going to want this life and this, you want all the good and the bad. And it, it just, you know, if you're given a lot, there's going to be a lot required of you. And so I don't think you can shirk that responsibility. I don't think you can want all this, these things. And then when something is required of you kind of go, no, I don't really want that. Like you have to, you have to, um, you have to be willing to have broad shoulders and, and whether it be parenting or, or your social life or professional life. And so, you know, I always feel like, um, there's a responsibility on me to, to lead in certain ways. And, and so I, I try not to shirk that responsibility. Tim, I gotta know, are you in your, are you in your office? Is there a fan in there or, or is it, is it getting hot in your office? We need to know. <laughs> Why? Because <laughs> you just entered the hot seat. Yeah. You just, awesome. you just, you got into the hot seat. Rapid like fire it. questions. You gotta Let's go. Let's go. Hammer them away. <laughs> Easy. All right. Favorite tattoo, the most painful tat. Mm, favorite tattoo is, um, Probably the portrait of my grandfather. Okay. Um, uh, most painful, <sighs> back of the knee. Back of the oh, knee is the most painful. Ooh, no thanks. Yeah. There is a yeah. nerve there that I know too well of. So I. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I got hit. Uh, your go to breakfast order. Uh, I never eat it anymore, but since I'm from New Jersey, uh, pork, leg, and cheese sandwich. Can't say I've ever had it. Um, what? Okay, we'll get it for sure, for yeah. sure. And, it's, nope. and, and for everybody from Jersey, it's not Taylor Ham, it's Porco. I got you. It'll, right. it'll change your life. <laughs> Song you last sang in the car. Jesus. Um, hmm. Taylor Swift was on this morning, if I'm being totally honest. Yes. Okay, nothing wrong with that. The yes. new album? Swifty. It was, a, yeah, it was a new album, yeah. Okay. It just, it just happened to be on. I happen to know the words. I don't know why. <laughs> We won't tell anybody. <laughs> if you could bring one player to play on your Memphis 901 team, who would you bring in? And I just want to let you know, Charlie is available. <laughs> Charlie makes a cut. Charlie makes a cut. Um, worldwide, any player? Sure. Yeah, yeah. That you that that can be within the, the salary parameters. Oh, well, that's... Yeah. Well, I would, I'd bring in the greatest player of all time. Who plays at Juventus? And don't at me, and don't argue the, don't argue it. <laughs> His name's Cristiano Ronaldo. I would sign okay. him because he's the greatest player of all time, hands down. Can I just say something really quick on that? You His passion. His passion the other day of losing, like that was incredible. Right? Yeah. Well, you've seen th that. Now you just opened up a whole can of worms. Sure. You said he's the greatest player, hands down. I know you've played against Messi. I I know you've seen him live in person. You also have seen a young Ronaldo, and you've seen what he's grown into. How is it so easy for you to make that that um, that statement? Well, listen, I, listen. When when we talk about the greatest or top three, there's nothing dividing them, right? So people who tell me that Messi is the best, I you have to respect that. I I, I think Messi is almost the best. He's number two. <laughs> I, I, I look. I think I 
having been around Cristiano and and having seen the work ethic, they both have amazing work ethics. I, I just, I just, I just think that for me, he's the best. You know, he continues to do it in different leagues at different clubs, and um, you know, he's done it on an international stage. And I know people like it's. I say knock Messi. You can't knock Messi. Jesus Christ, he's he's you know, but you know, he's been <clears throat> he's been at one club. Um, uh, you know, inter- internationally, I think we could all say that I think that they have underachieved. Mm-hmm. You know, I think those Argentina teams have underachieved. Um, but to 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 be one of the world's greats at Manchester United and to be one of the world's greats at Real Madrid and to be one of the world's greats at Juventus, that to me is more difficult because it's hard to change teams. It's hard to change leagues and lifestyles and all that stuff. And you know, it, it just edges them for me. All right. Well, that, that you're the first to, to get us off the, the rapid fire questions because you, you had to throw out that statement. All right. Favorite game you've played in for the U.S. men's national team? At Azteca, where we won 1 0. Mm. The best teammate you had with the men's national team? Uh, Carlos Bocanegra. Of all the teammates you've had, who's had the best banter? Stu Holden. Ooh, most stylish teammate you played with? Most stylish team I ever played with was uh, Leighton Baines at um, at uh, Everton, and for a lot of different reasons. Only because he doesn't care. <laughs> he's, like, he's like, if if there was, if if he could have been one of the Beatles, and if the Beatles needed another uh, another band member, he would have been in the part of the Beatles. Okay, not bad. Yeah. What what is at the top of your current bu- bucket list? top of my current bucket list um gosh it would be it would be to travel um you know there's a there's a couple places that i want to see um and go back to but where what places yeah uh i i haven't done i haven't done the south pacific i haven't done Mm. uh bali borneo those type of places and so I, i think i'd like to i'd like to take some time off and just do that for a while Dabble in the Southeast yeah. Asia region. Hang out. I think that yeah. nice. Get like a native tattoo, that type of stuff. Just chill, oh. yeah. You knew mm-hmm. there was going to be a tattoo in there, right? It's part of the reason. You crushed, you crushed this interview, Tim. Yeah. Thanks, so, thank you, guys. Uh, thank you for sitting down with us. I you know you, you got, you're a player. You got to recover. You got to get an ice bath. Then you, you got to go like sign some contracts. Um, Trust you got to have some, some meetings. So, <laughs> oh, uh, do. Yeah, I know you're a busy man. So thank you. Really thank appreciate you guys. it. I appreciate Thanks, you guys. Tim. Miss you. Charlie, that was a very cool conversation with Tim. Man, I, I don't even know where to start. Where what do you think? What do you what do you take away from that? Uh, just, just one of the the greatest um teammates I've ever had. Um just like he said, the approach to training every day. I remember him just just wanting to be the best and not allowing anybody to score on him. He was that good. Um and and he just he made everyone better. So to hear him talk about how the Manchester United days kind of helped him build his foundation. And, um, you know, whether the, it was the success or the failure, it allowed him to become the best Tim Howard he, he could. And uh, I, was, I was really happy with what we were able to, to get out of him. Yeah, I can't imagine him in goal with all those players shooting. Like, my eyes would have just been like, I can't believe this is reality, right? And he's just no. like, yeah, they, they were shooting against me. It was intense. Like, <laughs> But um, I think for me, when I listen to him talk, I don't think I've ever heard anybody really talk about what that game was like in Trinidad mm-hmm. when 
the U.S. knew that they didn't qualify for the World Cup. And this is a man, how many times in this podcast did he talk about passion and his passion, right? And you could feel it in that moment, how deeply he still feels that pain because he never got another chance. And the fact that he shared that with us, I thought was really special. Well, he's a special guy. And um, he'll go always go down as uh, probably the top goalkeeper ever to play for the U.S. men's national team. So uh, just to hear his perspective, I think, was enlightening. And it also, I think, gives gives the young guys hope that next generation, like he talked about Zach Steffen, um, what a role model to have, uh, you know, in Tim Howard to bounce off any question who's been there, who, who's been in his shoes. He's been in Manchester. Right. He's played at the, the top, the top club um, in the world uh, during that time. So um, it, it's just, uh, it's really good to, for youngsters to, to really get a, a firm idea of, of what it, okay. what it takes to succeed. He said two decades, two Oof. decades. He said one game, one season. Good. Do it for, do it for 19 more. And, that that'll sit with you (laughs) yeah Uh, i missed a few of those uh decades in my career Uh, but charlie i you know i teased you you Mm -hmm. you might have some training to do for memphis 901 if tim's gonna bring you in so on that note you better get to running i don't know if you're still at the cape but you got to do some sprints before you go (laughs) go um out of retirement and go play with tim again but that was really fun i hope uh you guys enjoyed this Mm -hmm. conversation that we had with tim howard and as always rate, review, subscribe, download, do all the things on your podcast stations that you listen to. We've really enjoyed bringing you guys these episodes and we just had the goat on. Back to back goats. Back to back. I mean, if you're listening to these podcasts, you have to be telling yourself, when does it end? Because you you just keep getting (laughs) these these stellar interviews. Yes, the answer is it doesn't. So keep tuning in, (laughs) keep subscribing, keep keep listening. And uh, we, we always welcome... Uh, you guys and and thank you so much for for all your support and uh from us thank you see you later see you later